Welcome to the More Than Corporate podcast, where we discuss finding fulfillment, defining success, and living your best life. There's no roadmap to success, no one-size-fits-all answer to fulfillment. I believe it requires us all to be vulnerable and authentic about what we want to accomplish and have the courage to step out of our comfort zone to chase our dreams. Keep listening to hear stories from inspiring people who make it their mission to live their best life every day. Welcome back to the show, everyone. My name is Amber Furman, and this is episode 51 of the More Than Corporate Podcast. Welcome back to another show, everyone. Today on the show, I have a really interesting interview with Zach Knight. Zach and I met at the Build Your Network live event here in Las Vegas that Travis Chapel posted. And honestly, through this interview, I could have talked to Zach forever. And that was just evidence of our experience at Build Your Network Live, because I know that We spent so much time talking about super interesting topics and Zach's background and my background and kind of how we're so different and yet share so many different experiences and could have these really powerful conversations even though we come from such different backgrounds. So Zach is currently an infantry lieutenant and platoon leader in the United States Army Georgia National Guard. His time spent in the Army has involved extensive training in risk assessment and mitigation techniques that have been proven in the most intense environments. Prior to joining the Army, Zach spent seven years serving as a police officer in the Smyrna community where he grew up. These years were spent receiving the best crime detection and prevention training law enforcement has to offer. Zach earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice from Penn Foster University. Zach is currently enrolled at American Military University, where he's completing a master's program in business administration with a concentration in security management. He is also a physical security professional, a credential that indicates he is an industry leader in physical security with a specialization in threat analysis. Zach and I really dig into a ton of topics on this episode, and it goes a little bit long, but it's all full of amazing content from Zach, and he offers so much value. We dig into so many things from his security agency that he runs, his his personal business, as well as the nonprofit and podcast that he runs with his wife, Heather Knight, and that's From Surviving to Thriving, that focuses on assisting individuals who are recovering from domestic abuse and are leaving domestic relationships where they can be given the support that they need to be successful and to stay on their own two feet without having to go back or feeling like they have to go back to those abusive relationships. We also get into a ton of topics relating to his time in the police force and the military and some of the things that he liked and some of the negatives that went around with that. My goal with this podcast is never to make anything overly political. However, there are certain conversations that really need to be discussed and those conversations are the ones that sometimes get avoided and they're the most important. And so we dig into Zach's idea on where the gap between community and law enforcement is coming in and what we can do as a community and as a um, individual members in our community to try to bridge that gap. 
We go into some pretty deep topics, but again, it's a super valuable interview from Zach, and I'm super excited to share it with you. Before we jump into Zach's interview, I would like to ask you to take a moment to head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review for the podcast. It really gives me an idea of what you're enjoying on the show, what you're not enjoying on the show. It also helps me with Apple's algorithm, but really I want to hear from you and hear what topics you want to hear on the show in the future and just see what's resonating with you so that I can provide valuable content that you'll enjoy in the future. So if you can head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review, I would greatly appreciate it. With that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the interview with Zach Knight. Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Oh, Amber, I appreciate you having me. I'm so excited. So I met Zach at the Build Your Network event that Travis Chapel posted this year, and you should definitely check it out for a future year. It was pretty amazing. We met a ton of cool people. Um, I really wanted Zach to come on and talk to you guys because he's got such a cool story. I know you guys just heard his his bio, but I love what he's doing with his life now and kind of some of his, his history. So I'm su- super excited for him to tell you all about that. Why don't we go ahead and start with what it was like for you growing up and whether like what plans you had for your life when you were like high school age. So I went through um, private schools, private Christian schools. I grew up in uh, Georgia. So I'm born and raised just outside of Atlanta, obviously very Southern Baptist in this arena or in this area. Um, So I grew up in elementary school going through private schools, a pretty sheltered lifestyle. And then to get even more sheltered, I was homeschooled through middle school and high school, which for me, I know you uh, mentioned you were interested in that. For me, I absolutely hated it. Um, I was a high school athlete or athlete growing up. I had several scholarship offers for baseball, went to showcases all across. But one of the biggest factors for me was that I was unable to get scouted properly because I wasn't really playing on that high school level, if you will, in the public school system. So it made it really difficult. So I was very bitter about that um, growing up as a teenager that knew nothing else but baseball. And that led me literally the day I turned 18, I moved out and signed a, uh, signed a rental agreement for an apartment, no job, no nothing. Just like, I'm done with this. I'm out. And, um, I think it's amazing that that happens because how many times when we're like kids, um, and, and I consider 18 a kid, but when, when we're kids and we're like, money comes secondary, like screw it. I don't need the money. I don't know how I'm going to deal with it when I'm signing this apartment. And, and then when we get adults, we could use a little bit of that when it comes into business, maybe not as much as we have when we're 18. Did you know the reasons for why you were taken into a homeschool situation? Did your parents just not trust public school or what was the reasoning behind that? Yeah, it was pretty much that they didn't want me around that quote unquote environment. Um, I did play rec ball um, where I was with high school people. You know, I had that socialization. That's where I was able to socialize. Back in that day, I graduated high school in 06 and there weren't, homeschooling really wasn't like a mainstream thing like it is now. Now you have all sorts of different social groups, meetups, so on and so forth, where it's much more mainstream and it's much more, um, I guess, efficient in learning. So uh, from what I understood, the logic was, oh, hey, we don't want you around the sex, drugs, and rock and roll that's in this area, essentially. Um, And the the school system where I'm at is not the best. Where The high school I would have gone to probably would not have gotten a very good education. Um, So I, I really can't hate on that aspect of it. Uh, one interesting thing that, you know, having a, a hindsight of 2020, 
one interesting thing that I have come to really value about being homeschooled, it's a little bit different method my mom took. It, it was, she ordered the study materials from a college out of Florida. It was a Christian college out of Florida. They would send the materials for a couple of years. It was like videotapes, like the old school VHS. And then there's also, and for VHS, that's like a tape for those of you young folks listening. <laughs> um, but it was also uh, workbooks. So I literally had a curriculum sent to me. And what was different about how she did it, a lot of parents are very hands-off or very hands-on in homeschooling. She was very hands-off, but hey, I'm checking your progress. So she pretty much threw books at me and said, learn this. And I got through middle school and high school literally teaching myself everything from Spanish to calculus to whatever, you know, whatever topic that happened in high school. It's been way too long for me to remember that now. Um, but I've found value in that now where my bachelor's degree was distance learning. I did everything online and it, it you know, that requires a very high level of discipline where you have to be self-motivated to get it done. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, bachelors. Um, I was a full-time police officer while I was doing that. So I'd be, you know, on patrol and knock out a test or on patrol and knock out whatever. And that's even bled into my MBA program now where I'm going through military, military university that is all distance learning. So my MBA, I just started my last two classes. We were making jokes about the finance classes I'm in right now, but all of that is distance learning. And if it hasn't, hadn't have been for that homeschooling, I don't think I would have had the motivation and the discipline now to be able to self teach all this information which then applies directly into business. I'm a self-taught business business owner. So everything I've learned in business, of course, it's, it's come from help from mentors and people I've picked their brains about different things. But overall, it's very, been very self-taught. So I've learned to really appreciate that from my homeschool days. There's, that's so cool. And there's so much um, important stuff that I want to talk about, about what you just said. But first of all, you mentioned that it's self-taught, but through mentors. And I think that that's so important because people think that self-taught means that you kind of sit in a room and you teach it all yourself and you just oh, read no. books. And that's just not <laughs> the way it goes. Like you reach out to people, you associate with people who are doing what you want to do in whatever way, whether it's, whether it's education or business. And so I think that's a really important thing to hit home on. The other thing that I really wanted to focus on when you were talking about the discipline side, what comes to my mind, and I'm interested to know whether you feel the same way, is the idea that we all look for permission to do things differently from people. And so being homeschooled, you didn't necessarily have that structured high school with a push into college, with a push into whatever else was next. Do you feel like because you were homeschooled that you have less of an issue thinking that you need permission to do things differently? I would say that's a very accurate way to explain something I've never quite thought of in that way. Um, it, it definitely... It was definitely a different upbringing. Like I, my dad owned a renovations company for 20 years or so. So I would do schoolwork and go to work for him. And it was one of those where I learned very early what hard work was. He's old school. He's a Vietnam vet. So he has a different mindset than people these days. So I don't think permission has ever been one of those things I've considered, even given my structured professional background, I've always been the take action and figure it out as you go. And that's applied. Like we were talking about, it's, you know, at 18, you don't think about money. It's a, a second thought. And I, I really feel like I've 
I've lived that way for better or worse in different aspects where I kind of just, in the, in the military, we say, just send it. I just send it and figure it out along the way. Um, and I think that really started in that environment where I just kind of sent it, you know, and sooner or later it's going to work, right? You'll figure out how to make it work. I, I, I love that. And the reason is because there's so much that we talk about on this show on a regular basis that falls into exactly what you just talked about, like the fear of failure, like not letting it be perfect before you send it off, asking for permission from people, feeling like you need some sort of a structured environment, feeling like you need to know it all. Like all of that is addressed in what you just said. And I think that that's so cool. However, you're right. It doesn't necessarily fall in line with your structured police department and military background. Where did the desire to go into the police force come from? Have you always had that or did that show up after high school? I actually always had it. And it, it's weird to look back at the objective line of thinking I had determining what I wanted to do with my life. But I remember in middle school, um, I was out, out in the backyard. And it's so vivid of a memory. I was out in the backyard practicing pitching drills because I wanted to be a professional pitcher. Um, and it turned into you know, if this doesn't work out, I just had this line of, th line of thought. If this doesn't work out, what could I see myself doing? Well, I don't want to sit behind a desk, even though I'm sitting behind a desk now. Um, I don't want to be trapped in a cubicle. You know, it was very specific of I don't want to be stuck. I want to be able to be fluid. But also a big thing was give back to my community. And it just kind of dawned on me, man, it'd be cool to be a cop. You know, I've always – Wanted to give back. I have that mindset. Uh, very much a servant leadership mindset is like the new hot topic for it. So I thought, you know what, I'll be a police officer. And that turned into a law enforcement career in the community I grew up in. It was the only police department I ever applied to. Is the only police department I ever worked at. And that was something that was like a passion of sooner or later, I'm going to get back to this area. I did leave for a couple years, 18, 19, chased a girl down to Columbus, Georgia, which is about two always hours a girl. Away. There's always a girl. There's <laughs> always a girl. Um, but I live my life very adherent to, I'm going to be a cop. And that means I've never, I've still to this day, I've never touched a drug in my life, not even marijuana. Um, at part of that was I wanted to be in the DEA, which is a whole nother side topic we can go into. Um, but the DEA for years wouldn't accept anybody that had ever done a drug. So the goal was I wanted to go that route. So I'm just never going to touch a drug. And that's maintained through athletics where I know it's, you know, performance, um, kind of takes away from performance, but also in, in my line of work, military, what I'm doing now with my company, being a druggie is not really the uh, best image, if you will. So, you know, it's just always been one of those where I've lived my life in that way to be able to have those types of values where, you know, image is huge to me. That's why I put my name on my company and that's why I did, I've done what I have in the past. Uh, another aspect, sorry, this is a really long answer. No, to no, no. Question. I like it. It's full of great stuff. Um, another aspect of why I went into law enforcement was I found myself getting into fights in middle school and high school throughout just whatever socialization. Um, but it wasn't the normal type of fighting. I was the bully of the bullies. If I saw somebody getting picked on, I went and picked on them. Essentially. I was always a bigger guy uh, from middle school up and was out, always the outsized while I'm short, I'm a stocky, I'm, I'm a wide guy. Um, and it turned into, if I saw somebody getting picked up, picked on, 
I would go beat up that bully. And that every single fight I ever got into was with a bully that I actively saw pushing somebody else around. And what's funny about that is my parents supported that a hundred percent. Every time I got in a fight, they'd be like, what happened? And I'd be like, well, I saw him picking on this person and they really, you know, this, you don't want your child going around getting in fights necessarily because of the legal consequences that could come from that. But when it's based off of that type of value, you know, and feeling like you need to be that protector as a knight, you know, you need to be that protector. Yeah. Um, I've really taken that to heart and that's, that's where, well, what better way than to be a cop? You know, every, every person you deal with on the street is picking on somebody else. You know? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, we're going to get into your foundation that you run with your wife here soon, but I think that it plays so much into that as well. Um, it, that's what really comes to mind. Uh, and it's interesting that you said that your parents support that because I think that that's so important to so many times we tell people, I think, I think every parent would like to be able to say that their child is the type of person that would stand up for and protect another person who's getting picked on or beat or whatever, you know, bullies were doing. But then at the same time, they're so regimented on, I want you to stand up for them, but don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. And then that just adds more limitations into people's minds. And so not that your parents were supporting the idea that you just go beat people down, but if something needs to happen, something needs to happen. So that's right. really interesting to me. So as far as the, how long did you how long did you serve in the police department? Uh, right, just under seven years. I left right before my seven year mark. And did you ever decide to go ahead and pursue the DEA route, or was there something that changed your mind with that? There were actually two routes I pursued. One was um, border patrol, which falls into um, my all my training and experiences in narcotics. I did. Um, undercover narcotics work. Uh, I was a big, just any type of dope, I would go after it, after it and gang work. So I'm a certified gang investigator, certified drug investigator here in Georgia. Um, all that's fine and dandy, but on a small scale, you know, you can actually trace back a ton of crime from burglaries to Indian autos. All of that can be traced back to supporting the drug trade. And a lot of it is they just want their next hit. So I felt like if I focused on drugs, it'd be a good way to combat all the other crime, trying to be a little bit strategic in what I was focusing on. But what actually got me into it in the first place was a book I read. Oh man, I must've been 18 or 19. And I read the, a book called the Natasha's and it is a book about human trafficking. And it talks about the, the trends in human trafficking and just goes very in depth into what it is. And what I learned was Atlanta, where I'm from, is the number one hub for human trafficking in the world. And the number one consumer of trafficked individuals is the United States military. And this was years before really? I ever joined the military. Um, I had actually had thoughts about joining the military. That didn't affect it one way or another. But I just found it an interesting fact where, you know, we have so many soldiers across the world stationed from Germany to Korea to Japan to you name it, we pretty much have soldiers there. And whether it's unwittingly or not, the individuals that they go out and want to party with end up being trafficked women. And I found that super interesting. So that's actually where my passion for law enforcement came from and the DEA 
and several other three-letter agencies that I was interested in, um, it ended up being I wanted to focus on human trafficking. I'm in Atlanta. It only makes sense. The unfortunate part was most of the police departments down here do not think there's an issue with human trafficking. It's like a denial, you know, oh, no, 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 that's not a thing here. So I really got shut down from pursuing that route, which is where I turned to narcotics because one, narcotics is much more obvious in a prevalent way, but also there's more money in it for wherever you're seizing that stuff for. And it all turns back into money with the government, unfortunately. But um, I, I turned that route thinking eventually if I, if I mirrored and essentially paralleled human trafficking long enough, I'd be able to take that turn back into human trafficking. And it ended up turning into applications with the DEA, Homeland Security, you name it, to get on a larger scale. I was actually offered a job with the DEA and ended up turning it down. I was in the middle of building a, uh, a home here in Atlanta with my ex-wife. She was not a fan of leaving the Atlanta area halfway through this customized home build. <laughs> shocker. Um, shocker. There's always a woman. We already, we already <laughs> talked about it. There's always a woman. Um, so I was offered that job, turned it down, and just maintained life on the street, more or less, with the police department. So this is why I love talking to you so much. And we talked forever at Build Your Network. I feel like we just sat down and, and had some drinks and talked. But background-wise, we couldn't be more different. Immigration attorney, criminal defense attorney, um, cop, military, DEA. Yep. Border Patrol. Yet so many of the conversations that we had had an underlying understanding of like where issues came from. And we're in a culture right now where people look at the surface level and they want to fight politically or however we want to do this, Democrat, Republican, whatever. But they're looking at the surface level instead of looking at the underlying issues. And when you said that you think that drugs was the place to go because it leads into all other crimes, I couldn't agree with that statement more. I talk about in Vegas all the time, so many of our criminal acts coming from drug addicts and from individuals with mental health concerns. And those are two issues, like mental health concerns, not quite as much because there's actually a, a diagnosis there that can or cannot be cured. But when it comes to drug addiction, I feel like we would have such a better police force or lack of recidivism rate if we would spend more time dealing with the underlying issue. And similar to Atlanta, Vegas is a huge place for human trafficking, and we have a huge drug problem, all kinds of different drugs. Date rape drug is huge. Um, yeah here in Vegas. What type of response did you see from your police department? I know that you talked a little bit about the human trafficking issue, but as far as the drug issue with trying to really combat that, were they receptive on those ends as well? Or were they kind of pushing it off bureaucratically saying, oh, there's other people to deal with that? With the police department, they're, they were supportive of that because it led to monetary seizures, property seizures. Again, it, it all led back to money. So the more dope you get off the street, the more money that whoever gets for those types of seizures. And we have a, a multi-jurisdictional drug force here in the county I live in, but also in Atlanta. And both of those, again, focus on big seizures. So you're talking pounds and pounds of of different types of narcotics and really so much more than that, just kilos of things that 
Um, they're trying to get off the street, but every time you go into that, you also find weapons. You also find money and you start seizing all of that. And as that builds, as you know, as those type of cases build, you look at Rico cases and you start taking down more people. And as you start attaching all of that, you take everybody's car and you take everybody's house and you take, and it just spirals continuously into, all right, now we have all these assets we can sell off and make money off of it. And that's where the support I think really came from is how can we make money for the department where, and again, police agencies are businesses. They have to be run as a business. And I totally understand that, but that's really where you could see some of the flaws in law enforcement start to come through. Is it all turned back to the dollar and what have you done for me to, improve that that bottom line whether it's you know writing more tickets which the unofficial if you will quota system that has everybody always talks about you know there's i've never once heard you have to do you have to go write 20 tickets but it was always suggested that you have a certain amount of units of productivity if you will so that you show that you're doing something Cops are great at articulating ways around what they really want to say. Great BSers. And that's what it turned into. And again, it turns back to revenue. How much revenue can you produce for the department? So as long as you're bringing in dope and guns and good PR and, and getting tickets written and so on and so forth, then you're good to go. You stray from that. That's when you're not so good to go. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. I mean, there's so many times in, the criminal defense world where I see people come through and I look at a case and it's like super weak and rather than just dismissing it. And, and let me preface this by saying we have a great prosecutor's office here and and we work really well with them. So, but there is a business side to it. And so you'll see just pay a fine and we'll dismiss the case. Oh, yeah. And while I appreciate that for my clients and there are certain cases where that's actually a gift to my client. There are other cases where the case shouldn't have been filed in the first place. And what I have to deal with is telling my client, like, I know that you probably didn't do this or this probably isn't a crime, but why do you want to waste your time doing it? Like, you're going to pay me and you're going to pay more to fly down here and handle this than you are in this fine that they're asking for. And that's how it kind of becomes a win-win, but it doesn't feel like a win for the clients. Like stepping back and seeing the big picture, it's a win-win. But I can definitely just see the business side of it. Everything's got to run on money somehow. We're going to get into this in just a little bit, but I think this plays a ton into the conversation that we're going to have in a little bit about kind of a breakdown in faith between agencies and, and the community. Um, and I think based upon our prior conversations, you said this had a little bit to do with why you decided to leave. Is that right? It did. And there were several different things. Um, as I mentioned, one of the reasons I got into law enforcement in the first place and stayed on the municipal level, which within the city was, it was my community. I wanted to be a part of my community. I grew up there. Um, what was really unfortunate was the reactions I started getting. I'm a bald white guy. Now I have a beard. Um, but I look like a cop. I look like a military guy and people I grew up with, um, black people, Mexicans, Hispanics, there's, there's a heavy Mexican populace in that city, but, um, Hispanics in general, you know, it, the initial was always, Oh, you're a white cop. So obviously you're here to kill us. And I remember pulling over a vehicle had four black teenagers in it. 
the only reason I pulled him over is because I had a brake light out. I was not a traffic guy. I would pull over traffic or I'd pull over vehicles solely based on narcotic narcotics activities. If you didn't have dope in the car or you weren't drunk, I sent you on your way. I just wasn't a guy to write tickets um, as I got more comfortable with pissing off the department. <laughs> um, but I remember pulling over this vehicle, four young black kids in it, and they all acted respectfully. They put their hands where they were able to be seen. And I went up to the driver, started speaking with the driver. Hey, you know, this is why I pulled you over. May I have your driver's license? Not an aggressive person. Now, I guess I could look intimidating, of course, and as a cop walking up, a white cop, it, during that culture of law enforcement, walking up to a car full of black people, I can understand the perception that they may have had. But what hit me really, really hard is somebody, they were in the back seat on the opposite side of the car, this young girl leans over enough where she could see out the window and says to me, please don't kill us. I promise we weren't doing anything wrong. Oh. And if that doesn't hit you in a way, two different, it kind of hit in two different ways. I took that personally. Yes, I'm a white guy. Yes, I'm a cop. But I literally grew up playing baseball in that neighborhood. I mean, there was a ballpark not a block from where I made that traffic stop where I grew up playing Little League. And if that, that broke my heart where what type of impact am I actually making? You know, my action making a, a difference in this community. Yes. I I'm that buddy cop that everybody had my cell phone number. Everybody had knew me by name, by face, and I was good with them, but that's the type of perception that were, we were having as police officers in that, in that uh, day and age. And um, it, it killed me for that, but also, where, what are their parents teaching them? Like that, that's the part that I really hated. Like I can't combat what your parents are telling you at home. I didn't do anything beyond pull you over. And I said, look, this is not, that's not who I am. I'm not the type of person to pull out my gun unless you present some sort of threat, try to explain the situation to them. But you could tell they were just scared and it's perpetuated by the story that was being told to them, whether through the media, whether through their home life, their friends, wherever they heard that rhetoric was something that you just, you have to realize you can't combat. And if you take it personally, like I did, and I, I was a little bit more invested with it being in my own community. Um, you have to realize at some point, like you just can't fight that. And it just wears you out You know, sooner or later it just weighs really heavily on you. And I just couldn't put up with it anymore. And I, you can see the mindset shift of a, a jaded cop where you start hating day to day, you start drinking heavily. You know, there's so many different things that happen in the law enforcement community that I started, I finally objectively looked at where am I headed and what am I doing? And I didn't like the person I'd become at that point because I'd become so jaded to get stuff exactly like that type of situation. So I, I love what you just said for so many reasons, but I, I don't believe that anybody gets into law enforcement without a desire to help somebody. Like it's not, it's not the type of career that you get into for accolades. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to qualify that by saying that I think that there are a lot of people who have kind of a dual motive of power. And so Absolutely. there are personality types that should not be given the type of power that police officers are given, which leads into so much of the fear that the media 
puts out which impacts situations like what you were just talking about. And I don't know that there, I don't know what the right answer is. And I don't know that there is a right answer, especially now where we're about 10 years. I'm going to say 10 years, even though I know it goes much farther back than that, but 10 years that I can think of it being at the forefront of media where this has been on constant weekly media coverage. Um, and, and what I've heard from people that are in, in the areas that it's hard to find people that have the, the right temperament that are still willing to do the job. And so that makes it even a harder problem to fix because now the only people that you can get in there to fill these needed positions are the people who have that dual motive of power because the others get so frustrated. What type of a solution do you see for this? Or is there one that you can, that you can look at and, and say like, this is how we get back on track? You know, I think that's a really difficult question to answer. And I think it really starts at the top of really the country as a whole. You know, I'll look at the presidency as where the biggest divide was created. And I won't get into my political beliefs and what my stance is. But when you start looking at the facts of how different presidents have acted, toward law enforcement and toward military, love it or hate whoever was in office. If you attend the funeral of an individual that is shot by police, host their family at the White House, yet the shooting was shown as justified, all the investigations happened, it's an unfortunate situation where the individual died, but you decide to host and support that family where a criminal is acting out, but when a police officer is gunned down by a criminal act and you choose not to acknowledge it, not to go to those funerals, not support that family, you start creating a divide. And I think that's where the biggest problem started, especially during while I was still a police officer. That's the divide I started seeing is that's when the hate came out. When I first started policing, there, there wasn't hate that I saw like that. But as the years drew on and more of that rhetoric was built, that's what I started seeing more is their support for the, the person that is literally breaking the law and an unfortunate, unfortunate situation happened afterwards. But there's no support for that person putting his life on the line. And that goes through law enforcement. That goes through the military. It applies to a lot of the things I've been a part of personally. And I've personally seen it, whereas a lot of people will look at the media and just believe what the media says. And, and I'm a old millennial, but a millennial nonetheless. And you look at my generation of millennials, you know, you, you want to believe what's on Facebook. That's not the right answer. You want to believe what's on CNN. Well, CNN is very, very far on one side. You switch over to Fox news. It's very, very far on the other side. So you have two extremes and again, love or hate president Trump. You look at what he's done. He's right in the middle. He pisses off the Republicans and he pisses off the Democrats. And I think that's, that's what we needed when he was elected. We needed somebody that could throw a, a wrench into everything that was happening, say, here's the middle. Let's come back to the middle because we're so far away from the middle now that there's just going to maintain a divide there until we can figure out a way to come back to the middle and be a country again, be family and community again. And I think it's really unfortunate that we're not at that point. No, I 100% agree with you on the fact that we are not a country and a family. And honestly, the 
just American pride that, and, and, you know, 9-11 was awful and I wish that it never had to happen to our country. However, the divide that was, um, that was brought together by that event is something that we don't feel anymore. And it lasted for such a short period of time. But I, I agree with you that we have to, as a country, figure out how to bridge that divide to be able to create that type of collaboration again before we fix anything. Because I, most reasonable people that I talk to, and I say reasonable because there are the people on the far left and the far right that is what the media is focusing on. Most reasonable people that I talk to can agree on the underlying issues. They can agree that immigration is a problem in this country. They can agree that we have, we have issues that we need to solve here. Um, they can agree that police brutality is an issue, but not as, I don't think it's as big of an issue as it is put out in the media because there's, there's a bad actor in every field. There's bad attorneys, there's bad police officers, bad politicians, bad teachers. We, so I agree with you that it has to start at the top. I also think though that there has to be some sort of an accountability for media. And I don't know how that happens because we live in a world right now where, like you said, Facebook, anybody can go put something on Facebook. Wikipedia is embarrassingly the number one research source for people that are trying to figure things out. And like anybody can add, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I've written a paper off of Wikipedia before. Okay. It happens, but, <laughs> <Haven't we all? laughs> um, but it's, it's member, it's, it's member created. The, the rhetoric that's on there is member created. We, and, and I think media has probably always been this way, but when it was print, it didn't get as massive attention as it did before right. because you want to talk about police officers or police departments being a business media is a business as well. And they're going to focus on what sells and feel good stories don't sell. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but I love that we're able to have these types of conversations, especially from somebody who's been in the middle of it from a, a fundamental base level standpoint of you know, this, this exists and it's heartbreaking because I think those conversations is where it starts to, to bridge a gap in communities at least. And then maybe it can work uphill. And yeah, absolutely. I think the conversation, especially um, talking about like the foundation that my wife and I, um, what we started when, when, when you and I talked about it, it was, yes, it's, you got to have that conversation and just like the conversation we're having, you know, you have to have that real down to earth conversation where you stop worrying about the symptoms, you know, everybody wants to solve the symptom. Nobody's looking at the problem. And it, it's interesting where I, I started policing before uh, video cameras were in cars. So I've seen that aspect of it. We got cameras in cars. It created a different level of accountability. Then a couple years later, body cams became a thing where the public demanded every law enforcement agency has to have a cop with a body cam. And what was interesting is once that happened, it became a different rhetoric. First, it started, we need accountability for cops. And then as the video showed time and time and time again that the police officers were actually acting in the right manner, yes, you're going to have those individuals that act in a way that is not becoming a police officer. They act in ways that emotions taken over and they react and they're not in control of their own actions. So yes, there are going to be those bad apples, but you know, 90, 95% of the time, the cameras have shown the officers acting in the right way 
And now the argument is, or the rhetoric is, the cameras are unconstitutional. You can't record all of this. You're not allowed to do that. You're impeding upon my, uh, upon my privacy. Yet that's what you're demanding not five years ago. So I just find it interesting. You know, people want to look at the symptom. Oh, well, the camera is going to show I'm actually doing something wrong and I'm going to be the one kept accountable. But instead of it being the police officer that's being kept accountable, which they are still are. So I just find it interesting. People don't want to take responsibility for their own actions. You know, they don't want to take responsibility for whatever symptom that they are dealing with and look at the problem they actually caused or the problem that they should be dealing with. And I think that's one of the most unfortunate aspects of what's happening in society right now is people just don't want to take that ownership and look at what's the real problem. You know, did I create this problem for myself? which happens a lot in law enforcement. Somebody takes a couple of actions that result in law enforcement being involved. If you weren't acting in that way, law enforcement never would have had to been involved in the first place and unfortunate situations wouldn't have happened afterward. So if you can just take that initial responsibility for your actions, so much would be different in society right now. No, I 100% agree. And taking it out of just the law enforcement realm, like we're in the personal development space as well. And just becoming a better human, becoming a better business person, becoming a better spouse, becoming a better friend, like a better person. That's where it all starts is, you know, so much of, of what we've talked about today deals with your perception of the world. You know, everybody has their perception of what they expect to happen in any situation. And until that perception is challenged, that's kind of where your, your head goes in anything that you're dealing with. And so when you don't push yourself out of your comfort zone to get yourself into different rooms of people with different perceptions, then it stays the same. And I think that what you said about um, the story that you told with the, the um, car that you pulled over with um, the young black teenagers in it is that because we automatically attract to the people who have the same viewpoints as us, those perceptions never change and the story never changes. When we allow ourselves to get diversified in thoughts or ethnicity or, you know, worldviews or whatever it is, then all of a sudden we're able to see a different perspective of the world. But in that little snow globe that we live in, that's all they know. And so until we push ourselves out, that's not going to change. But when you talked about taking responsibility for your actions, that's just a human thing that needs to happen. And I wish that like so much of what I talk about on the show is exactly about that, that you are 100% in control of what happens in your life, of everything. I'm not a big fan of the wrong place at the wrong time. I think that those things happen. However, there were things happening in the wrong place that, you know, it, it's not just a wrong place, wrong time situation. Right. So when we talk about taking responsibility for your actions, it just brings so much light into everything that you do. And I want to highlight, I know that we've talked about this a couple of times and I, I don't think you said you've read it yet. The subtle art of not giving a fuck. Have you read I've that? I've not read it yet. It's on okay. my uh, Kindle after we talked about it. So he tells a story in that about a, an individual who decided that like his life wasn't going the way that he wanted to. And he decided that for one year he was going to operate under the assumption that everything that he did, everything that happened to him was his responsibility. 
and the way that his life changed from playing the victim in his life to being kind of the author of the future of what happens, all of a sudden these good things started happening in his life and his life started to change. So when we talk about taking responsibility for your actions and understanding that the problem that you see is never really the problem that exists and getting down into the heart of it, like I want everybody to really take that home and understand that that is a fundamental human thing that needs to happen that is not limited to this conversation we're having about um, the breakdown between law enforcement and societies. 100%, 100%. And to the resources that I've read that I think we discussed in Vegas um, that I think you've read as well, the first one being Extreme Ownership, mm-hmm. which is a phenomenal book written by military folks that apply lessons from operations, what they took from the operation, what the personal lesson was, and then apply it in a business because now they own a business consulting agency. Um, phenomenal book, but it talks about taking extreme ownership for what happens. And then they actually wrote a follow-up that was just recently released called The Dichotomy of Leadership. And, you know, one of the biggest beliefs I have is that you don't have to be in a position of leadership to be a leader. You know, you can take the actions of a leader and lead those around you, lead your peers. You can be the leader of your boss more or less in a, I guess in a, not in a formal fashion, but informally, you can take those actions that show this is the right path to be taking. And people are going to notice that. And if you show that you are taking ownership of your acts, everybody's going to have a higher level of respect for you for everything you do. And they know if you say, Hey, I F this up, then you truly did. Or if you say, no, that wasn't me. I didn't have that piece of the puzzle, but you've always taken ownership of what you're doing. People are going to respect that so much more and see that you really are not only taking ownership, but you're also an individual of your word. Yeah, absolutely. Also, if you haven't read it yet, David Goggins can't hurt me. Um, oh, if, absolutely so read that. Phenomenal. So good. And I love that he talks about doing an after action report on his life. Like everything that he sets out to do, he sits down and does an after action report on exactly what you were just talking about. What did we like about this mission? What didn't we like? What would we do differently? Because we're not capable of making changes in the heat of the moment. So let's, you know, talk about maybe you were talking about leadership. Let's go down that road. And if you don't actively change the way that you think about leadership and the way that you react in leadership situations, when you are not in those situations, then when you are in them, your brain kicks in and habit takes over. And so, so much of this is being able to make those changes when you are outside of the moment and outside of the emotion that's attached to the moment and be able to take the lessons and the losses from, from that situation. Absolutely. And I think one um, interesting aspect of everything we're talking about really draws back into not necessarily taking the action or changing your mindset. I think it's having to have the objectivity and the capability of listening to somebody else and actively being a part of that conversation. Not just immediately, as soon as you say something, I'm not thinking what my retort's going to be. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking how I'm going to argue with you. It's let me listen to what you actually said. Let me process that. Think about it objectively. Can, does that fit me? Does that fit my conversation? Does that fit my beliefs? 
not because you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat or not because you're a defense attorney and I'm a cop, very different sides of the aisle. <laughs> um, I'm going to look at what you say and process it objectively, or at least as objectively as I can. But a lot of that has to come into the active listening portion, not just immediately disregarding what you have to say because you're a dirty criminal attorney. Oh, no, right. Well, I mean... <laughs> Did, I had to get one jab in there. Sorry. No, of course. I mean, I don't know if you remember this or not, but when Sessions took, um, when Trump took office and Sessions made one of his first immigration related re um, press releases, he called us all dirty immigration lawyers. And so that became like this huge hashtag. So when I went to our ALA um, American Immigration Lawyers Association conference that year, they had written dirty immigration lawyer on everybody's name tag. So nice. we own that. Um, but I want to hit home on something you just said, and then I want to get into your foundation and let you talk about that because I think that it's amazing. Um, but my very first Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal argument, exactly what you just said happened. Like I couldn't possibly imagine a situation where the judges were trying to guide me or help me. And so no matter what they said, everything they said was argumentative. And I didn't even realize that what they were saying was helping my case. So they would say something and then I would automatically go into argumentative point because I'm an attorney and that's what we're supposed to do, do, right? And one <laughs> of the judges called me out on it and he says, you should listen to what we're saying because when somebody gives you a softball, don't like throw it down into the ground. Like you got to hit that out of the park. And that was one of the biggest lessons that I learned. And that had a lot to do with nerves and falling back on habits and things to that effect. But that's exactly what I'm talking about. Had I created that habit of listening and processing instead of just arguing, because that's what I'm told attorneys are supposed to do, then I could have been much more effective for my client. I did. I did win. We'll throw that out there. But um, <laughs> it would have been much less embarrassing. I listen to that audio a lot. And every time I get to that point, I'm like, oh, Amber, like, oh, no, <laughs> um, so you and your wife have this amazing foundation that you have created. And um, my biggest takeaway from it, and I'm going to let you talk about it in just a second, was that it takes everything that we've just talked about in the things that you loved about law enforcement, the things that you loved about being able to help people and protect people, and it puts them into a situation where you can control what happens with a lack of bureaucratic bullshit behind it. Um, and so I'm super excited for you to tell everybody kind of what you do in your business and what you do in your foundation, because I think that they um, cross so much. Yes, they, they definitely do. And they were designed that way to obviously keep us engaged all the way around. And I think a lot of it draws back to, or a lot of it started when I left the police department and went into the military. I put my two weeks in and that two weeks ran out. And the next day I went into basic training at 28 years old, which for anybody that's ever been to basic training knows that is old. That is very, very old. And I felt it compared to the 17 and 18 year olds in basic training with me. But as I went through the military training, I went through basic training, officer school, and then infantry officer school, where I learned so many different avenues of thought and leadership and risk management, risk mitigation, so on and so forth, that we came up with the concept of my company, Night Protection, that focuses on essentially the same thing we focused on in law enforcement where we have crime prevention techniques blended with the risk mitigation techniques that are my responsibility in the infantry and, and created crime mitigation techniques. And we apply that to our clients 
where we provide strategic planning and security for homeowners all the way up to corporations and help them mitigate risks, mitigate lawsuits, um, mitigate liability, everything that could be an issue. And the reason we started that company and my wife was a very big part of the girlfriend at the time. Um, she was a very big part of planning that where we wanted to do more than what law enforcement was capable of. As a police officer, I was sued frivolously three times all, Oh, you did this wrong, that wrong. And here's a lawsuit. Super easy to throw a lawsuit on somebody. We get to court and the judge is like, ha ha ha, crumbles it up, throws it out. Right. So it really just becomes a frustration. But as we, we talked about a little bit, kind of hinted at it, I'm not the big, I'm going to do necessarily what I'm told just because I'm told to do it. I'm very much a, what's the right thing to do and let's take action on that. So a lot of these lawsuits came from me working in that gray area that I feel like you have to in law enforcement to really be effective. And one of the biggest issues I had was that you weren't able to give true recommendations of safety and security to the community. If you recommended a certain alarm company, a certain lock, um, or a technique that keeps you safe and it didn't work, well, now you just got another lawsuit, you got the police department sued, you got the city sued, so on and so forth. And that's kind of the society we live in today, whereas if you make those recommendations, but you're, they're not, quote unquote, your own, you're getting everybody in trouble. So time and again, you're told, don't make those recommendations. You're there to take a report, file a report, and move on. And that's not why I got into law enforcement. So when we started this company, we started it based on doing risk assessments that show here are your threats, here are your vulnerabilities, here's what you need protected. And we gave the recommendations for this is what's actually going to keep you safe. And here's what you need to do to really, truly stay safe. Yes, it's a huge liability on my company. That's what insurance is for. And I pay plenty for that to make <laughs> sure I'm covered just in case something ever goes wrong. And we went to... Um, well, I, I, I guess I finished training, launched the business. Uh, about two months after I launched the business, I found out about a deployment to Afghanistan I just got back from in August. Uh, five months after I found out, I was on a plane to Afghanistan to um, go play in the desert. But during that seven or eight months of business where we were actually running it, I felt like I wasn't doing enough. I felt like, yes, I'm, I'm really making a difference. I'm truly making a difference now but there's still more we can give. And it was actually, we came out to Las Vegas. I came out to Las Vegas for three. Heather is incredibly more intelligent. She convinced me to take her to Vegas. I went to Thrive, the business conference that y'all have out there uh, by Cole Hatter, phenomenal event. Um, she went in the Jeep Wrangler I rented and went off-roading instead and went to have fun in Vegas and went to the Strip and did all the cool things while I was stuck in the Hard Rock at this wonderful conference. Um, if I don't mention this part, then she will kill me when she listens to this. We actually got married the day before Thrive in a drive-through in Las Vegas. It was a huge surprise, a phenomenal story. I'll tell you some other time. But um, I went to Thrive, and it was the first business conference I've ever been to. I've always been to law enforcement, military conferences, whatever, but first business conference I've ever been to. And that was thanks to our mutual friend, Travis Chapel, as part of his mastermind that I did, um, his first mastermind where he got us all tickets to thrive. We went out there, had a great time. I kind of went into it like, well, he paid for my ticket, so I'll just go and didn't really think anything of it. 
But the speaker lineup really interests me. There were several people like Jesse Itzler, Brad Lee, um, Cole Hatter himself. I mean, there's several people that I knew. Molly Bloom ended up speaking. I knew of all these people, and it just fascinated me. I'm like, oh, cool. You know, at least I know who's going to be talking. But one big thing about Thrive is creating purpose, creating purpose with your business, creating some sort of purpose where you're giving back with what you're doing. So the initial thought about our our foundation was it's going to be a for purpose branch of night protection, which is why I wanted to talk about. So, uh, you know, lay the foundwork of what we're doing with my company because I wanted knowing the, this was in September and I left in October. So knowing I was a month away from leaving, I thought of let's create something for night protection that Heather's going to be engaged with. What can she do with my company? that will keep my company afloat while I'm deployed. So we came up with Surviving to Thriving. It was going to be a four-purpose branch of night protection originally. Um, the primary focus of the program was going to be women's self-defense. It's RAD, Rape Progression Defense, Women's Self-Defense. Heather is a nationally certified instructor. It's a phenomenal program that she taught at the police department, and she also taught it at a local school here, a university here. And I'm like, you know what, let's do that through night protection, offer that service. That's something that gets our brand awareness out and she can you know, keep her engaged. It'll keep business kind of rolling and more of a marketing thing for me, but also an engagement piece for her. As we started looking more and more into domestic violence, obviously we're both passionate about it. My biological father was abusive to my mother. So there's a little bit of a personal beef there. Heather has a personal story from her teenage years where um, there was a sexual assault that occurred. You know, it's everybody's touched by domestic violence. So we all have some sort of story. I think the stats are that one in four women in their lifetime are going to be abused to some extent, one in three before they're out of college. So this is a huge passion for Heather and, and women's empowerment is a huge passion for her where she wanted to teach this on a broader scale than just the police department or just the university. But as we looked at operationally, how can we do this with the company? The company's revenue, as soon as I left, the company's revenue went from 10 grand a month to two grand a month. And it just, she couldn't, she was a full-time police officer. She was in a master's program. She finished the master's program. She continued to be a full-time police officer and ran my company throughout it. So obviously she, she wouldn't have the capability to have a full-time devoted schedule to it like I could. So we're like, we thought, let's do a, let's start a 501c3. How can we get financial support outside of my company's revenue stream where we're not also just throwing a ton of our own money into it? So we filed for 501c3 for surviving to thriving in October of 18. The government shutdown happened January or so of 19. They somehow mysteriously, I don't know how the government does this, but they lost our paperwork. Of course they did. Of course they did. So we refiled and in July of 2019, we got our 501c3 status for surviving to thriving. I got home from Afghanistan in August. We went on a short vacation to Costa Rica. So really since September, we've been driving this train for surviving to thriving in my company where they do work very much hand in hand. And Heather ended up leaving the police department in beginning of November to go full time with myself and the nonprofit because 
where we thought it would be great to be a 501c3 for government grants and corporate grants and all these great donor dollars that <laughs> we were sure we were going to get. We've yet to see most of that. So we're still funding it ourselves, but we're at least on the right path to launching it now where we have the time, we have the revenue from my company supporting enough where we're, we're starting to get the message out a lot more. I love it so much. And we just did a interview on your podcast. So um, when that has not officially launched or has it? It has not. Um, our podcast, we're still in the baby stages of it. Um, Funny enough, I'm just going to move out to Vegas because every time we come to Vegas, another brilliant idea happens. See? So, as you know, when we met at the BYN Live with Travis, um, we went into that weekend. Heather had never been to a business conference. It was her first one. I'm like, well, shoot, it's Travis. It's going to be awesome. He hosted at Top Golf in Vegas. What more could you ask for, right? <laughs> So I'm like, if nothing else, it's going to be a great weekend. And we did the VIP tickets. So I'm like, if we're going to do it, let's do it right. And it's, it'd be a great introduction to Heather for all these people. Because most of them hadn't met her. A couple hadn't met her a little bit. But um, more of the distance since we're over in Atlanta. And we went into the weekend with her thinking, one day I want to start a podcast. She just started listening to podcasts uh, a couple probably by the time I got back from Afghanistan or maybe a little bit while I was there. Cause I really encouraged her for personal development, you know, listen, if nothing else, listen to Travis's cause he has such great interviews and figure out something, you know, take little tidbits just to do a little bit of self-improvement outside of law enforcement. So she has the idea that she wants to do a podcast at some point in the future. And the number one on her list of interview is Serena Williams who is a huge advocate for domestic violence. And if, if y'all don't know, Serena Williams is a little bit of a tennis star. <laughs> Just a little bit. Realm for, you know, two decades or so. Um, but she's a huge advocate for domestic violence. So my thought being the business minded side of the equation, that's great, but we can't afford it like straight up. Like there's no way we can build out a studio, build out, I'm not going to do something half-ass. If I'm going to do it, we're going to do it full bore. It might not be perfect, but we're going to do it. I'm very big on imperfect mass action. Yes. So I'm like, you know, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. And we just can't right now. And we went in that weekend with that mindset where I pretty much shut it down. And then I would say of the room, there were what, 100 people? I would say probably 90 have podcasts. Yeah, the there was a ton. Weekend. Yeah, it turned into a pod fest, essentially, where everybody talked about their podcast. This is what I'm doing for my podcast, and this is how my podcast has helped my business and launched ours, yada, yada, yada. And the realization slapped me upside the back of the head like a two-by-four swung by Heather. <laughs> Why the hell are we not using the podcast to launch the nonprofit? So we started talking to Travis about it. And I'm like, man, I don't know of any nonprofits in the realm, especially don't know of any domestic violence nonprofits in the realm. So is that even something that's going to be successful? I had no clue if it would be something that was engaging. And Travis looked at me, God love him. He looked at me like, bro, you're an idiot. Like, <laughs> yes, it's going to work because nobody's touching that right now. There, there's one other domestic violence focused podcast, but they release an episode every six months. They're not consistent. They're not putting out good content. So essentially there's nobody else in the space. And as he and I talked about it more, Heather sitting off to the side was, you know, she kind of did this sit back and like, yeah, 
I told you I'm right. As usual, I'm like, Travis, come on, bro. Stop. You know, but it, it turned into, we're being pretty narrow minded, pretty short sighted of not starting with the podcast, especially after you hooked us up with Eric and he's quite affordable for the editing aspect of our episodes. And we're just going to do one episode a week and we're bringing in thought leaders like yourself that are mindset because mindset with domestic violence is so huge to get yes, it is. started. So we're interviewing other nonprofits that share a similar mission, like Dress for Success, bringing in their executive directors. And it's twofold. One, we learn their successes, but we also further their mission and their audience. We're also bringing in individuals like yourself that with your NLP fanciness, you can hit the mindset topic that you and I love talking about so much. And from your perspective, you can hit it in a way I could never hit it, but it brings that value to our audience, which is phenomenal. And then we're also featuring individuals that have gone through those traumatic events that want to share their story as part of the healing phase. The very first individual we interviewed and the, it'll be the second episode release we're launching should be launching January 7th. That first episode is just Heather and I talking about the mission and what we're doing. And then we're going to release every Tuesday. So that second episode, the young lady we interviewed is part of a human trafficking nonprofit here in Atlanta. And obviously domestic violence, sexual abuse, human trafficking, they all cross paths very heavily. So we wanted to partner up with a human trafficking nonprofit that could team up on different things. Again, a shared mission. So we brought her on to talk about that. Well, as she started talking about her background, she went into a very personal story about being abused and sexually assaulted as a child. And she literally started, she was sharing the story and, and she's very successful in where she is now. She's um, a property investor, part of this nonprofit, just doing great things. But during this story, she just started bawling, telling us about it. And that's the type of impact we want is this is an individual that's hugely successful. She's in her mid-30s. I say that. I'm sorry if I'm wrong, Beth. Um, but she's at that point where she, w she went from surviving a traumatic experience to now thriving post that experience. And she shared everything that has helped her get through that. And that's where the podcast is a no brainer. You know, if we can share those type of stories where individuals, women can see this other woman was able to go from surviving to thriving, which is why we've named the, the podcast that we named the nonprofit that if they can go from surviving to thriving, then I can do it too. And so much of our mission and so much of our, our story is that empowerment piece of you're fully capable of doing it. You just have to have your mind realize you are capable of doing it. 100%. And I could talk about this with you for hours. Um, this is something that I'm super passionate about myself. Like I've never been involved in that domestic type of relationship. However, I know people who have. And as a criminal defense attorney, I experience both sides of that um, on a regular basis. But I bring it up because we just did a really cool interview where we got into some of the mindset behind the domestic violence, as well as a lot about what your, your nonprofit focuses on and the mission. And so when that launches, I will share that with my audience, but I would love you for you guys all 
to go check out their podcast. By the time this episode releases, your podcast will have been launched. And so I would love for everybody to go check that out. So like I said, I could talk to you forever, but um, I think that this has to come to an end at some point. So I'm super long winded. So this is (laughs) no, it's okay. So what I ask everybody on the show is because this is the more than corporate podcast. It's about defining your own idea of success. So what does success mean to you right now? And how has that changed for you throughout your life? You know, I think for me, success is undefined so far. I would love to tell you some super deep intellectual, I'm smarter than I really am type of answer. But at this point, I don't think I've seen the level of success I want for myself. To me, it's tied around legacy. What type of legacy are you leaving? Are you leaving the legacy of a criminal? Are you leaving the legacy of somebody that didn't care? Or are you leaving the legacy that's going to continue for generations where you're making an impact, a true impact in people's lives? And at this point, I don't think I'm quite there yet. I think we're on the right path with everything we're doing. But I don't think I've hit that success marker for myself yet. But it's funny. I just met, I had lunch yesterday with somebody that knew me the month I started Night Protection. And he was one of the first people I met in all the networking. Um, he's a marketing guy. We had a long conversation of where I feel like we're, we have shortcomings with a nonprofit and with my company, just trying to, again, learn and, and figure out what I can do more to get the message out more because that's so vital to what we're doing. And he starts laughing and he's like, do you remember where you were a year and a half ago? Like, not really. I was panicked about a deployment and trying to get a company to run without me. And he's like, he started rattling things off that he remembered. And he's like, compared to 97%, 100%, 99%, I won't say 100, there might be one, but compared to a, a large amount of other people, you've reached a pinnacle of success that most small businesses don't see, most nonprofits don't see. And the problems you're having today are your dreams from a year and a half ago. And I think if you can take that lesson and look at where you were a year and a half ago and realize how much you've progressed as a person, no matter what you're doing in your personal life, you with your insane tough mutters, if you can look at the progress you've made across that and realize you're, you're seeing successes every day, but your mind is just so overly critical of everything you're doing, you're never going to give yourself that credit. And I am super guilty of being very critical of myself and what I feel like I, where I should be compared to where I am. But he hit me with that realization, again, trying to be objective about things. Like a year and a half ago, I was a mess. I had no clue what I was doing. And while I still barely have a clue of what I'm doing, I'm leaps and bounds of where, where I am or where I was then. So again, a long-winded answer, but I think that's where success truly comes from. So I love that for somebody who didn't have an answer, you gave probably one of the best answers I've ever gotten out of that question. I think that the idea that success is a journey, not a destination. We talk about happiness being a journey, not a destination, and fulfillment being a journey, not a destination. But for some reason, success is this thing that we're supposed to have at this particular time. And I am trying to bring awareness to the fact that it doesn't work that way, that success changes, and that success is something that you have to work at at an everlasting thing. And so your answer is so on point and I connect with it so much. So thank you for that. All right. So before we run away, I would love to do a quick random round, let everybody get to know you just a little bit if you're cool with that. Absolutely. All right. So 
other than what you're currently doing, what profession do you think it would be fun to attempt? I'm still stuck on a professional athlete. I think it would be a blast to get paid a million dollars an inning like Mariano Rivera or John Smoltz, two of my favorite players growing up. I think it'd be amazing to be thrown money like that to see what I could do with that much money. That'd be fantastic. Right? <laughs> I love it. Um, I'm a huge baseball fan as well, so I connect with you on that. Um, if you could time travel, where would you go and why? I think, and, and listening to your podcast, a lot of people talk about going back in time to look at a different thing. And for me, I would go 50 years into the future and see what, not necessarily the history books have said about me and what I've tried, what I'm trying to accomplish, but I'd want to see where the missteps were. What could I do now to change that outcome of leaving a legacy? Maybe I'm on the right path. Maybe I need to take a right turn or a left turn to better define something I'm working on, but I would love to see what that legacy is 50 years from now. Love it. What personality trait do you think has been most helpful to you throughout your life? I would say that leadership as a whole, whether that's being the bully of bullies or discipline and motivation, the way I define what a leader should be, I think has been a huge aspect of to who I have been and who I will be. If um, you had one opportunity to tell people about a book that you think would be beneficial to their life, what would you tell them? You know, it's funny, and I'm going to be long-winded on this answer as well. There is an admiral, and his name passes me, but as soon as I tell you who he is, you'll know. I know you'll know who he is. But he released, or he had a speech talking about making your bed. The make your bed speech, absolutely. Make your bed speech. And he wrote a book called Make Your Bed. And the reason this is a long-winded answer is my grandmother's very big on don't give me anything for Christmas. I swear I'll beat you if you get me anything for Christmas. She's just that point in her life where she wants us to do other things. But I could not get her anything. And I bought her the Make Your Bed book because she correlates very much on mindset and a lot of things we talk about. What was funny about it is my goal was to steal the book from her and read it when she was done with it. She actually bought me the same book. We opened the book at the same exact time, Christmas morning. <laughs> and she started dying laughing. And she's like, I was planning on stealing the book back from you so I could read it. And if there's any book I could tell people or uh, a speech to listen to, go listen to that. Go understand the lesson he's trying to teach you about the small victories in life and starting your day with a win and making your bed and how impactful one little win for the day could be for your psyche. Absolutely. That's, I love that so much. All right. So let's go ahead and wrap this up with um, ev telling everybody where they can find you, where they can find your business, where they can find your foundation on social media. So I am all over Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Google, you name it. And my handle is at night, K-N-I-G-H-T, pro LLC. That's my business, but I monitor everything so it's easy to find. And then the foundation and Heather are both, and really me because I'm on them as well, but we're all across, same LinkedIn, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and that handle is at 2TO Thriving ATL. So at 2 Thriving ATL, and that's the nonprofit surviving. 
into thriving. Awesome. And I will post those links for everybody to check out as well. If you haven't already connected with Zach, please reach out and connect with him. See what you can do to assist with the foundation or just listen to his story and his mission and his passion, because I can guarantee you, as he said, that we all know somebody who's been affected by domestic violence at some point in time in our life. And this mission is something that needs to be um, a, a nationwide mission. I mean, there are so many places out there that handle domestic violence shelters, but what I love about what you guys do is affecting the mindset piece, not just giving them a place to stay, but giving them the life skills and the education and the mindset that they need to not revert back to those, to those things. So whatever I can do to help you guys spread that word, I am happy to do. You're the best. And I think this is a great start having that conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the show. I hope that something that was said resonated with you or provided value to you in one way or another. I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on the show. You can reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram at Amber Furman. Also, I've created a Facebook community for followers of the show to interact with me and other members of the community. You can find that on Facebook at More Than Corporate. So go ahead and join that group if you'd like to stay up to date on podcast happenings and meet some really cool people. Again, thanks so much for tuning in.